Welcome to Solutions Cast, a CFC podcast that highlights cooperative network projects and leader stories, as well as economic and energy industry insights. I'm your host, Christine Pachenik. On today's episode, we're going to talk about continued growth of electric vehicle adoption that's expected across the U.S. Recently, to address this growth, several standards and requirements for charging stations have been announced that will impact co-ops. These include Tesla making 7,500 of their proprietary chargers available to non-Tesla drivers, the federal government's efforts to install 500,000 public chargers, and the Federal Highway Administration's release of standards and requirements for charging stations funded under the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Formula Program. This leads to one question. Should cooperatives be pushing the panic button on EV infrastructure and program development? Joining me today to discuss the impact of EVs on the electric cooperative network is Alan Shedd, the Emerging Technologies Director at Oglethorpe Power Corporation. Welcome, Alan. Thanks. Glad to be here. Alan, can you tell me what your role consists of as the Emerging Technologies Director? Sure. Well, my role at Oglethorpe Power is really to work with our 38-member electric cooperative distribution co-ops to keep them up to date on emerging technologies everything from electrification to EVs, heat pumps, DER, energy storage, you name it. And then beyond that, to sort of help those member consumers, you know, understand and engage to help position co-ops to be that trusted energy advisor we like to talk about. Excellent. Now, you would be uh, considered an advocate for EVs. Would you call yourself that? Well, I've, I've joked that I'm a, an evangelist, uh, spelled with a capital E-V. <laughs> okay, I like that. Now, the forecasted growth of EVs in America suggests an obvious need for, for charging infrastructure. As I just discussed, there's opportunities both from a federal standpoint, the, the changes that Tesla's looking at making. The interesting part about this, though, is there's a greater penetration of EVs in urban areas as opposed to rural adoption, which remains relatively small. And looking at our co-ops, you know, we have a lot of rural co-ops. We have some co-ops that are suburban that might be seeing a higher penetration. What level should cooperatives be concerned about their charging infrastructure or looking at the, the future potential adoption of EVs? Well, to sort of back up to your, your lead-in, you know, title, you know, I think it's important to be concerned, panicked. No, you know, it, we're, we're not at the, at the panic point you know, just yet. And I think it's important to keep in mind that roughly 80% of electric vehicle charging is done at home, you know, where we already serve. So, you know, managing that load as, as more EVs are brought on to residential circuits is going to be critical. But it's also important to note that the adoption isn't going to be uniform. We're not going to wake up Christmas morning and suddenly everybody is driving an electric vehicle. Some are seeing immediate implications right now, certainly, as you said, in more suburban areas. Other, other co-ops are probably looking at, you know, the next three to five years for, for them to reach that point where this is, you know, a, a major issue. But it's important to, to get started now. I think, I think that's the, the big takeaway because if it is five years, frankly, five years in, in co-op time is, is like tomorrow. It takes us a long time. That's true. Five years can be kind of a blink of an eye um, in a lot of scenarios. Now, I, I do want to break that down a little bit more. Let's take 
for example, a cooperative that's maybe larger, more suburban, right, seeing a higher penetration of EVs, potentially even on an exponential growth curve, what should a cooperative like that be looking at as they grow an EV program? Well, you know, I think almost regardless of of the size and, and level of market penetration of EVs, you know, they're sort of, you know, three big steps to take. And and the first one, of course, is is just education. You know, get educated, understand that this is a, a rapidly changing industry marketplace. Um, we need to collect data. You know, we're, we're a data-driven organization, but understanding how many EVs we have in our service territory. Frankly, a lot of cooperatives don't really know how many are on their system. There are some analytics we can do to, to help pin that down. We can survey our members to try to learn more, but making sure we understand how things work and and what the implications are to our business are important. Beyond that, sort of the next step is gain some firsthand experience. It's really important to talk from a position of knowledge and experience than just what you read on the internet. So I encourage folks to add EVs to their fleet, you know, look at installing some charging, both to support the fleet or perhaps for for public charging, do some market analysis, try to get a handle on how fast EVs are coming to your area and what the implications would be. Beyond that, engaging in things like rate design, looking at incentives, managed charging programs, all these things take time to do. And it's way easier to do that while we're dealing with half a dozen, a couple hundred EVs rather than thousands of them everybody clamoring for a solution. Obviously, outreach, reaching out to your members, keeping them informed about what you're doing, answering their questions. I mean, that's what we're here for. That's great. And I've heard that before. Education, education, education is such an important part of it. Even from other CEOs, the adoption of an EV fleet, even for the co-op. I think Mm -hmm. talking offline to you before, you had mentioned an interesting suggestion that went beyond necessarily purchasing an EV, but looking at potentially leasing an EV. And what was the reason for that? I thought this was an interesting point that you had brought up. Well, it's twofold. One is, you know, the the rules now under the Inflation Reduction Act provide some better incentives for nonprofits, people who don't have a tax appetite to take advantage of leases. But more important, it depends on how you're going to use this vehicle. But if you're thinking about using the vehicle in kind of a marketing and a and a show and drive capacity where you're you're taking it to your annual meeting to civic club meeting showing off what an EV is letting people take it for a drive it's probably better to go to meetings like that with current technology if you buy an EV typically in co-op land you know we buy things for the long term if you buy one 5 years from now do you still want to be driving that same old somewhat dated technology or do you want to have the latest thing Leasing a vehicle for three years might be that sweet spot where it's both economic and it keeps you sort of rotating the stock so that you're you're presenting what's current technology to the members. Yep, thought it was a great point. I want to talk about another scenario. So like you mentioned, I think those were three great points for kind of engaging um, education, uh, looking at initial adoption uh, rates and programs for a cooperative. But let's talk about maybe a strictly rural co-op much smaller, mm-hmm. who says, I don't see any EV on my line that I know of, you know, this, this, maybe they're, they're on the, the side of, I, I don't know that this is actually coming, or there shouldn't be that 
level of concern to even start engaging their customer base on EVs. What mm -hmm. would you say to that co-op? Well, first off, you know, when I look at market penetration in Georgia, you know, we track EV adoption at the zip code level for our, our member systems. And if I look at more of our smaller rural co-ops in the southern part of the state, they don't have many EVs on their system in terms of absolute numbers. But if you look at the growth over the past three years, they're seeing a huge upswing percentage wise. Now, obviously, if you have two EVs and you add one more, that's 50% increase. That's a big number. Joking aside, EVs are coming, you know, like it or not. I think there's some real advantages to, to EVs on our systems. They're basically the same steps. The, the advantage is in a more rural area where adoption is going to be slower, you have the ability to be a little more strategic, a little more taking a long view on, on getting prepared. It's not like, oh my gosh, we've got to figure this out next week because you know, one of our CNI customers is clamoring for installing charging at their distribution warehouse. You know, taking that long view is good, but things could change rapidly. I think one clear example is the clean school bus program from EPA. We've got one school system in a rural disadvantaged community in Southeast Georgia, who's getting four electric school buses under this first round. Did I think that, you know, they would get to that point sort of overnight? No, but you know, the, the cooperative has to deal with how they're going to charge these vehicles, how they'll provide electricity, what sort of rate they'll be on. There are a lot of considerations. So my point there is sometimes we only look at light duty vehicles, you know, personal vehicles, but don't overlook the fact that there are other vehicles, whether it's school buses or, you know, maybe the county would add vehicles to their fleet, or maybe a business would locate a distribution warehouse and suddenly now they want to electrify part of their fleet. And I want to go into that a little bit more, too, because as you mentioned earlier, 80% of charging is likely to be done in a residential scenario. But how about those CNI customers? Like you're talking about larger fleets, trucks, delivery vehicles, right? You may have a company or a school system that needs more charging infrastructure. How should a co-op start planning for those scenarios that go beyond and outside the, the residential scenario? Well, the good news is, you know, most of us do that every day. This is just good key account management, right? You know, we we pride ourselves as electric co-ops of being, you know, in touch with our key accounts um, to understand what they're doing, having that that one-on-one -one relationship. So it really comes down to to planning and and knowing what's coming ahead of time. You know, the the sort of worst case scenario you know, to go back to school buses, what if those buses showed up and and there wasn't any pre-work done? We didn't have chargers installed. We didn't have the service installed. <clears throat> and we're looking at 18 month to two year backlog on getting distribution transformer to serve that. That would not only be bad press, it wouldn't be good customer service, right? I think the best thing to do is to talk with those fleets, understand where they're at in the process. You know, some fleets have already done their homework. They know they have a path forward. They know where they're going. It's part of their corporate sustainability goals. Others may be just tire kicking. You know, maybe they heard about electric vehicles or fleet truck opportunities online, and they're just trying to figure out what to do. So gauging early and often, you know, is just a, a good way. Understand what the schedule is up front, obviously. 
And do you see those types of charging infrastructures for fleets really having an increased impact on the grid over maybe what a co-op would anticipate? I know, like I said, a lot's been kind of focused on the residential level, but is that going to put an additional strain on their system um, and at what level? You know, it's always a matter of scale, right? If we were talking about a fleet of, say, a dozen vehicles that are a depot operation where they're out on the road during the day and they're returning to the depot at night and have all night 12 hours or more to charge, they could probably, a level two charger, you know, would be adequate. So the need for massive service upgrades to serve that really isn't a thing. If instead you're talking about class eight tractors where they're just rolling in, dropping off a trailer, need to charge and get back out on the road, you know, that can be a pretty big demand impact. The new megawatt charging standard that's being developed for class eight tractors, even class six vehicles can draw up to four megawatts of charging capacity to each vehicle, you know, for rapidly charging these. So it, in under that scenario, it doesn't take many tractors plugged in to suddenly look like a, a Walmart super center or even, you know, a, a computer data center. That's a, that's a big load. It's not unmanageable. Obviously we've served large loads like that before we, we and we'll continue to, but it takes planning and it may, take transmission upgrade. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It's interesting and something not necessarily all co-ops will need to to necessarily be concerned with to start, but I'm sure considering the variety of co-ops that we serve, that is something that needs to be on kind of the the plan, right? Mm-hmm. Which going to that, I want to talk a little bit about why it's so important to start that rate and policy development process early. Uh, I think y- you kind of mentioned a little bit about you may have a different rate policy for a CNI customer. What does your residential look like? How are you communicating with these different stakeholders who mm-hmm. would hold EVs? And what do what do those policies look like? Yeah, so you know, rates are always we we sort of treat them like a third rail topic, right? You know, we know we need them, but gosh, it's uncomfortable, or we don't really want to jump in and deal with it. But it is important, certainly when it comes to electric vehicles. To have that discussion, to start planning on different rate scenarios, you know, time of use rates are one tool that is frequently talked about with regard to EVs to help shape that load curve. If we can encourage consumers to charge their EVs during off-peak hours, the impact on the grid is less. Potentially, their savings for them because they can charge when electricity is less expensive. So, time of use rates are an important tool. Just how exactly that looks how big a a differential you need between peak and off-peak to modify behavior. It's also important to keep in mind that we're still dealing with the early adopters of a a technology. Geeks like me, you know, really love that kind of stuff. We'll go out of our way to save a, a couple of pennies. Down the road, as we see more EVs come onto our systems and we sort of reach that early majority, they may be less inclined, you know, to be motivated by a complex rate structure. So we need to keep that in mind. We haven't really talked much about public charging. We tend to to sort of focus on our bread and butter, you know, residential charging where we're going to sell the most electricity, but public charging, particularly DC fast chargers that you'd use along a corridor. And it's really the focus of like the the NEVI funding uh, from the federal government 
these things have a poor load factor. You know, they, they use a huge amount of a high demand to charge a vehicle and then they may sit idle for, for hours before the next vehicle comes along. Traditionally, under our, our typical demand rates, they pay a real premium for that. The, the cost of energy is more expensive. And rightly so, because we have to build the facilities, you know, to supply that high KW demand, whether or not we're selling any energy to it or not. So crafting a rate that that adequately addresses that is, is really important. There's been some some pressure, some pushback from charging network operators, from various lobbies who say, oh, my gosh, these demand charges are punitive. You know, you need, you know, we need an energy only rate. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure that that's really the answer. We need to be fair. We need to be equitable. We don't need to cross subsidize, you know, one class of customers over another. So developing rates that we can all be happy with and recover our costs under are important. Yep. Or we have to decide that, hey, EVs are a good thing for us and make that conscious decision that we're going to somehow subsidize public charging because it will encourage residential adoption where we're going to make our money. That's interesting. Now, talking a little bit about uh, public charging, mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier, the the funding opportunities have really potentially changed the narrative of this EV adoption, right? And the potential for adding additional public charging. What do you think are some considerations cooperatives should have when they look at these funding opportunities? Well, you know, that's a that's a big topic, isn't it? You know, because, you know, frankly, there's billions of dollars in federal programs that are being put into to all, all forms of program. The NEVI funding, the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program is five billion dollars, you know, by itself. School bus program, another five billion. So lots of money being thrown around here and a lot of additional programs besides just those two that co-ops could take advantage of. But your choice to pursue that funding, you know, needs to be made with eyes wide open, right? It's great to talk about free money, but, you know, oftentimes there are a lot of strings attached to this. You know, there are special requirements, there's schedules, there's, you know, a lot of reporting that has to be done that'll have an impact on you. You need to consider what your match component would be and where that money's going to come from. And if you engage in those, you know, what is the ask? So I I think it's really probably a good idea to engage with someone who really understands the ins and outs of it. Oh my gosh, reading some of those federal register announcements, it makes my head spin trying to figure out just what exactly are they asking for and what do I have to do to to apply? That's Yeah. So it's not all sunshine and roses, basically (laughs) uh, saying, let me raise my hand and get some free money. Um, Definitely having the plan set, having the the rate schedule, having kind of the the background information, the customer engagement. It seems like you need kind of a base foundation before you may even want to say, hey, I want to uh, dive in and just grab some 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 of the cash that's being handed out, but kind of well, doing the due diligence, obviously. Well, is... to, to be clear, I don't I don't want to say, oh my gosh, you know, don't bother applying for this money. It's too much trouble. It's a terrific opportunity. Yeah. We may never see this sort of opportunity you know, in my lifetime to take advantage of this. I mean, it's our money, it's taxpayer money. It didn't just somehow show up, right? But there are terrific opportunities to use this money for, for good, to, to improve our system resilience, to, to 
do things that we would normally do, but on an accelerated pace. So to be clear, I'm not trying to talk you out of doing it. I'm trying to suggest that go into it with your eyes wide open, read the fine print, you know, engage yep. experts. I think always a word of caution, like you said, reading the fine print is always the due diligence that we sh- we all should do. And with that, I do want to talk a little bit about, you mentioned you being an evangelist for EVs. Let's talk just briefly how co-ops should really position their organizations with their membership regarding EV adoption. I mean, sometimes I consider these engagement programs, is it suggesting to their membership that they should adopt EVs? Is this... Does that need to be a concern of cooperatives? Well, you know, there are two sides to every coin, but EVs, like most, you know, beneficial electrification programs, can create that triple win that we're all looking for, where it saves the the member money, uh, it's good for the environment, and it helps with our system utilization, helps increase sales. I mean, when those stars align and, and we can make that happen, it's a, it's a good thing. It's important to keep in mind, you know, that cooperatives have had a really long history of, of electrification, right? Go back to the early days of providing that first light bulb or, you know, a motor to drive a well pump or, you know, how many of us had had demonstration kitchens in our offices to show people how to use electric stoves, and later promoted heat pumps and air conditioners. So electric vehicles are are kind of just a continuation of that. The good thing is they're a lot more fun than than a refrigerator. <laughs> but at the end of the day, really, our job isn't necessarily to say, oh my gosh, go buy this EV. It's great. But it's to help our members make informed decisions, give them the facts, help them understand if it makes sense for them. EVs aren't a magic bullet. They're not the solution for everybody for every application. There are plenty of opportunities where they they are a good solution, but we shouldn't try to force fit it. We ought to help help our members, you know, make those decisions. All right. I think that's fair. And now just to wrap this all up, if you could summarize kind of your top three tips that you would give to a co-op executive who's looking at EV funding opportunities. And this is, and that's fairly broad in terms of what they could potentially do with it, how they should go about looking at instituting a program or enhancing a program that they may already have. Do you have any any tips or advice? Well, you know, as, as we already discussed, I mean, there's a, a wide range of opportunities here. You know, each one of those has its own guidelines. Each one of those funding opportunities typically has its own office, its own deadlines, its own, own submission requirements and schedules. So, you know, get the facts, understand what that is. I think it's also important really to take a critical look at, you know, what is your co-op's goal? What do you want to accomplish with this? And and what commitment are you willing to make? Do you have the staff to support it? You know, what is what is the financial match of the funding requirement? You know, is is this a path you want to go down? And you know, I encourage you to to do that, but but approach it with some again eyes wide open. And and then finally there are plenty of folks like CFC whose whose job it is to to handle money to understand these things. So so get professional help. You know you're not in it alone. Well, excellent, Alan. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Your expertise is always appreciated, and the insight that you've provided is great for co-op executives. And I I really appreciate it.
Well, it's been my pleasure. You know, always happy to, to talk about one of my favorite subjects. So uh, call Anita. Excellent. Be sure to listen for more episodes of CFC Solutions Cast on your favorite podcast app and check out www.nrucfc.coop slash solutions for more cooperative news. 